Well, I want to welcome you to Trinity Bible Church. Again, it's great to be with you both here in the worship center and uh, in the sanctuary this morning and folks online as well. Uh, but we have been in the book of Mark, Discover Jesus. We've been uh, studying Jesus in the gospel of Mark, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 13 and 14 this Sunday. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. And we've been using uh, just four simple questions, Discovery Bible study questions, four simple questions to just kind of follow along and track through. And these are, these are great uh, questions that I think we can use when we read the Bible with someone else and study with someone else when we study on our own. Uh, we've been using them here on Sunday morning, but uh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you reach a passage of scripture where um, you're gonna need to take a little time and dig in and, and, and study uh, a little bit deeper for a while before you can kind of get to the answer to some of these questions. Uh, sometimes you read a passage and you just start scratching your head and you're like, where are we going with this? What does this mean? And so today, uh, Mark chapter 13, we're going to spend our time there of the two chapters. I could only really pick one this morning. Um, so we're going to spend our time in Mark chapter 13 and we're going to spend kind of the first half of the message just uh, digging into uh, just verse by verse, what is, what is Jesus doing here? What is he teaching? Just kind of explaining through what's happening here. And it's gonna be uh, technical. If you like history, if you like really get, getting, getting deep and studying scripture, which I, I hope you do, or at least you're, you're becoming more used to that here, um, then, then you're gonna love this first part. Uh, and then we're gonna get more practical and uh, a little more tangible as we um, get to the second half this morning. And we'll, we will get to our discovery questions later today. So turn to Mark chapter 13. While you're doing this, if you weren't here last Sunday or haven't been kind of uh, reading through and following along, in Mark chapter 11 and 12, um, things kind of, kind of reach uh, the, the crescendo of the, the, the book. The, things start to reach a climax, a tipping point here where Jesus is in the last week of his life now. Um, he enters into Jerusalem uh, celebratory, triumphantly, you know, he comes into town and the crowds embrace him. They start to proclaim that uh, he, that, that, that maybe not 100% that he's the Messiah, but that he is a significant figure in the restoration of Israel and God's kingdom coming. And so people are, are all about it. They're convinced that he's really, he's really somebody. And again, they're mainly looking for a political savior, a political Messiah to come in and drive out the Romans and restore Israel to its former glory. So Jesus coming into Jerusalem, it's like this is the moment that they've been waiting for. He's going to come and he's going to drive out the Romans. Um, but remember, Jesus doesn't do that when he gets to Jerusalem, does he? Where does Jesus go when he gets to Jerusalem? He goes to the temple and he turns over the tables and he drives out the corrupt money changers out of the temple. Jesus shows up in Jerusalem and they're expecting him to drive out the Romans, but no, he goes to the temple and he cleans house. And so by the end of chapter 11, all throughout chapter 11 and chapter 12, it's clear that the religious leaders are ready to kill him. But they're afraid of the crowds because the crowds are still anticipating, okay, Jesus is here. He's come to Jerusalem. This is, where, this is where it happens, right? This is where the temple is. This is where the kings live. And so Jesus, he ends chapter 12 in the temple, teaching 
if you remember to last week, teaching about the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees have been challenging him right and left during these uh, days after his triumphal entry. And Jesus has been kind of fending off every test that's come to him. And by the, by the end of chapter 12, Jesus kind of lays out the bottom line reason of why these religious leaders are rejecting him. Caitlin did such a good job of pointing this out last week, that the religious leaders, they loved their status. They loved their power. They loved their, their wealth. And they were resisting Jesus. They didn't want to trust and follow him because they had way too much to lose. And remember where Jesus is when he says this. He's right in the middle of the temple. That's gutsy, right? So you can just imagine if this were a movie, like the music swells up as Jesus is just laying it out there. He's just giving it to the religious leaders, right? And, and then he just, he ends chapter 12. It's like this mic drop moment and he just makes this dramatic exit out of the temple as we begin Mark chapter 13. So put yourself in that movie. Jesus, you know, music is swell. Music is big. He's, he's making his exit out of the temple. Mark 13, as he's going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. You gotta, he's, that, that's not the mood. That's not the vibe right now, right? Like Jesus is leaving the temple. He's just like laid it out and his disciples go into like tourist mode here. Like, wow, isn't this, look at these amazing stones, Jesus. Jesus just proclaimed judgment and... Now the disciples are looking around at the stones and, and they have good reason for uh, saying that these are, these are beautiful, massive buildings. This is one of the great wonders of the ancient world. This uh, temple that Herod was building, that Herod was in the middle of, of building, it had kind of started this um, uh, part of this construction project of the temple. Herod started around the time when Jesus was born, a little before the time when Jesus was born. The whole complex was 35 acres. Some of the walls were 165 feet tall, which was unheard of in that day. Herod covered the sides of this temple with massive plates of, of gold. And so when the sun would shine off of it and you were kind of at a distance traveling to Jerusalem, it looked like the light of the world. And the stones, yeah, the stones were massive. It was, I mean, one of the most stunning buildings of the ancient world. But Jesus isn't impressed with this building because he saw the, the spiritual rot that was within and the pride and the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders who at that very moment are, are plotting to kill the son of God, to kill the Messiah that was sent to them. And so Jesus says in verse two, do you see these great buildings, not one stone, will be left on another. All will be thrown down. Now, if you're the disciples, you're thinking, Jesus has got to be exaggerating here. Like, there's no way. I mean, these stones are the size of a car. Like, no way somebody's going to be able to pull these stones down. But that's actually exactly what happened. 40 years later, in 70 AD, General Titus and the Roman army moved into town. The Jewish people rebelled against Rome, and Rome sent an army once and for all to crush them. And, and along with that, they burned the temple to the ground and literally upturned 
every stone. You can still, you can still see in Jerusalem today the fulfillment of this prophecy. Verse three, while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, so they leave the temple, they go up and sit in the Mount of Olives and they're looking out over it. And Peter, James, and John and Andrew asked him privately. They couldn't leave this alone, right? Like this is a big, big deal what Jesus is predicting here. So they said, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And this is the key question that sets up the rest of Mark chapter 13. When will these things happen? Now, if you have a Bible that you like to mark up or like to underline or circle things, you should circle these things, these things. The disciples say that twice, and this phrase is repeated here later, and it's key to understanding the chapter. So Jesus goes on to answer. Verse five, Jesus told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. So listen, he's saying there's a lot of things that are about to happen. Uh, Wars, rumors of wars, all these things must take place, but that's not the end. And as we look around us, we can see that, yeah, that's kind of normal life on this earth, in this broken world. Like, has there ever been a time in human history, has there ever been a decade where there weren't wars and rumors of wars and and earthquakes and famines, right? Has there ever been a time in human history where someone wasn't claiming to be the savior of the world? Like, all of these, Jesus are saying, is the beginning of, of birth pains. They're just the beginning. Kind of like when Amy was nine months pregnant, uh, she would, you know, we'd be together and she would say kind of all of a sudden, ooh, you know, I feel something. And I'd kind of, oh, okay, here we go. Like, is this, is this it? Or like, should I, should I pack our bags? Should we get ready to get in the car? Or, or is this just a false alarm? And she'd say, no, 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 no. This is just, this is just the beginning. Everything's fine. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to see a lot of things happen. And you're going to think the sky is falling. You're going to think, oh, it's over. This is it. He's saying, no, 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 no. No, don't be alarmed. There are things that have to go down first before I come back. These things must take place. Verse 9, but you be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts. You'll be flogged in the synagogue. You'll stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it's necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you'll say, but say whatever's given to you at that time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You'll be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So not only... Expect wars and rumors of wars, Jesus is saying, but also expect opposition, expect hostility, expect persecution, expect division within families. And history tells us, even just in the first 300 years of the church, millions of followers of Jesus were executed for their faith. The best estimates say 10% of the Roman Empire was executed for, for, for being uh, Christian for, for claiming to be Christian. 
And so all of this, uh, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, persecution, Jesus is saying, hey, this is, this is kind of normal life on this earth. This world is a mess. This is nothing new, nothing out of the ordinary. You feel encouraged yet this morning? <laughs> but here's the promise. Here's the encouragement. Hey, the one who endures to the end will be saved. You can hit that next slide, Alan. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. You can hit that next slide. So now, now things start to be getting a little more specific here. And, and we see um, the, the things take shape as Jesus begins to describe more of what will take place in 70 AD. Um, particularly with the destruction of the temple, the abomination of desolation. Sounds like something out of a Lord of the Rings movie, right? Like the desolation of smog. Like, is this the Hobbit here? What's happening? Um, but this goes back to the, the prophecy in Daniel um, that many believe was fulfilled when a king named Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century came into the temple and sacrificed a, a pig, an unclean animal. Like an incredible desecration of the temple and, and something, Jesus is saying something apparently on that scale is gonna happen again. Um, now, some believe this is still something yet to happen in the future, but, but Jesus, it seems to be, he's talking here about something that, that certainly happened around that time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. There are a lot of events. I was reading a book that said there are eight different things that this could be referring to eight different events that this could possibly be referring to the abomination of desolation around 70 AD. They could have been, uh, there were uh, religious leaders that desecrated the temple. There were uh, certainly General Titus when he came, made sacrifices to pagan gods right before he destroyed the temple. And so Jesus says on that day, when that day comes, verse 15, a man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter, for those days will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been, been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut these days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. And if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, see there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I've told you everything in advance. Now, again, seems to be referring to things that are going to happen at that time of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. All of this is Jesus responding to the question of, hey, when are those stones going to be thrown down? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And Jesus is telling all of this in advance so that they know, hey, look, when this judgment comes, when General Titus moves into town and begins to do these unspeakable horrors, hey, don't get, don't get sucked into this fight. These are days of tribulation. It'll be bad. But this, this isn't the end. Now, some also think that this is um, referring to a future time. 
Because verse 19 says that there is a tribulation that hasn't been seen from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. So Jesus could be giving prophecy that has both near-term fulfillment in 70 AD and has long-term fulfillment, um, possible fulfillment in the end times. But all of it is a message that boils down to Jesus saying, hey, look, there's gonna be tribulation. There's gonna be suffering in this world. But, you know, don't, don't get sucked into the drama and, and the latest wild claims and sensational headlines. Like, there's going to be a lot of birth pains, a lot of false alarms. And so everything up to this point, at the very least, has to be referring to the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. But it also may have some uh, bearing on future fulfillment to come as well. But now... Um, you can go, uh, go ahead to the next slide and then the next one. Verse 24. Um, oh, yep, one back. Sorry. Uh, this next slide, verse 24, this next verse, certainly seems to point to something that is yet to come. In those days, after that tribulation, he says. So in those future days, uh, after all of the things that He's just described, verse 1 through 23. In those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will be falling from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Look at how it's interesting. Reading this verse, it's very, very similar to how Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 describes the return of Jesus. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Amazing, the similarities. Uh, Both seem to be talking about the same event, the return of Jesus, Jesus gathering his people from the four winds, So when we look at Mark chapter 13, how are we to understand what's happening so far? So Mark 13, verses 1 through 23, you could kind of bracket off and saying, this is talking about all the tribulation that is going to take place before uh, Jesus' return. These things happen before his return. And Jesus is saying there, hey, hold steady, hold fast to the end. You'll think it's the end. You'll think the sky is falling. But, but it won't be the end yet. And so hold, hold on, hold steady. The end is verse 24 through 27. And you'll know it when you see it. It'll be, it'll be clear. I'll return in power. I'll gather my people together. So then verse 28, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. So notice he says, when you see these things happening, you see these things happening. Again, that's a key phrase here. Remember that phrase from the beginning of the chapter in verse four. The disciples ask, hey, when will these things happen? In reference to the destruction of the temple, the upturning of every stone of the temple. And and then later in verse 29 here, Jesus is saying, when these things happen, 
So all of these tribulations, then you can recognize that he is near at the door. So as I look at verse 29, the phrase these things refers to the events of verse 1 through 23. The tribulation and destruction of the temple. And when these things happen, Jesus is saying, then you can anticipate and begin looking for the return of Jesus as described in verse 24 through 27. So that the events of 24 through 27 aren't meant to be included or understood as included in the these things of verse 1 through 23. So if you have your Bible, you could kind of think of it as bracketing off 1 through 23, and those are the these things. And then verse 24 through 27 are the events that happen when Jesus walks through the door, right? He's near at the door when these things happen. And then in verse 24 through 27, it's him actually returning and walking through that door. So the reason this is important, the reason I'm spending time on the, these things is because of the next verse, verse 30. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So verse 30, at first, if you were to read it um, without a lot of context, um, it would give a lot of potential interpretive problems. What do we do with this verse? Verse 30, Jesus hasn't returned yet. Did Jesus say that he was gonna return within the generation and lifetime of the disciples, but then he, he didn't? Or did Jesus already return and it's just some sort of like spiritual return that everybody didn't really notice? Or is the Bible just wrong here? Well, there are a couple ways people try to explain verse 30. Uh, some people say generation is referring to actually the whole existence and time span of the human race. Like the human race will not pass away until all these things take place. I think that's kind of a stretch. I know there's people that have written a lot of commentary on that, trying to argue that. Uh, every time Jesus says that word generation, it always means the people that were alive during uh, his time on earth. Uh, so I, I think that one's a stretch. So a better explanation is, again, back to that key phrase, these things. In verse 29, these things refers to the tribulation and destruction of the temple, and it's separated from the return of Jesus in verse 24 through 27. So when Jesus says in verse 30, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place, he's assuming that we already know that these things does not include verses 24 through 27 and the events of his return. It includes the tribulation and destruction of the temple in verse 1 through 23. So Jesus is telling the truth in verse 30. The destruction of the temple did happen in that generation. And he left it open for his return to happen later, after those events. So if you just look at verse 30 and try to kind of understand it by itself, um, it would potentially be very confusing. That's why you have to read the Bible in context. You have to understand what comes before and after. Now, we've been kind of in the weeds a little bit. Um, hopefully most, 
most of you followed that. Um, I don't know if I totally followed that, but hopefully uh, most of us followed that. But I don't want you to lose the overall message of what Jesus is saying. He's trying to reassure them here. When the temple's destroyed, when all these things happen, it'll seem like the sky is falling. People will be out here saying, hey, this is the end, but it's not yet the end. My return will take place after this. He continues on in verse 32. Now concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Another mind bender of a verse. God the Father knows the time, and of course, Jesus and the Father are one. But when Jesus becomes a man, he voluntarily gives up the unlimited use of his divine attributes, of his omniscience on earth. Jesus laid aside his divine privileges and submitted to his Father's will. So, Father's will. So, only the Father knows the exact time. And now for the end of Mark 13. We're almost there. Uh, Mark 13, verse 33 through 37. Watch, be alert. For you don't know when the time is coming. It's like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert. Since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, you might find yourself sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. I want to get to those questions, those discovery questions. What do we discover about God here? Um, very simple, the first one, but just we discover that Jesus will return. Very simply, we discover that Jesus will return, and we discover a little bit about what kind of return it will be in verses 24 through 27. It'll be personal. It'll be personal. It'll be the Son of Man himself coming from heaven. It'll be unrecognizable or it'll be, sorry, recognizable. Uh, it'll be in power. Uh, in Acts 1.11, after Jesus ascends to heaven, uh, the angel says, hey, in the same way that you saw Jesus ascend to heaven, in the same way he will return. Just as you saw him and you recognized his glorified uh, body returning to heaven, hey, he'll return in that same way. First Thessalonians 4.16 says the Lord himself will descend. So Jesus returned, understand this. It's not some sort of figurative, spiritualized event. It's, it's bodily, physical, it's, it's a personal event where Jesus returns from heaven to earth. Second, it's unmistakable. It's unmistakable. So Mark 13, 24 through 27 talks about visible signs that will accompany his return. Signs that will be seen by everyone. Very similar to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, where it talks about the Lord descending with a shout and with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God. This is, there's a, a, a grand announcement to everyone. You'll know it when you see it. And so we don't need to be deceived thinking that, you know, like the, the false Christs that come along and uh, have to kind of come along and convince everyone that, that they're the Messiah or the, the, the returned Christ. No, Jesus isn't going to need to go around and convince everyone. Everyone's going to know it. And so Jesus in his second return, it's unmistakable. He's coming in power. His first return, his first coming rather, was uh, in, in meekness in the form of a baby. But his second coming will be in power and in strength. Second thing about God is that, you know, God wants some things 
to remain a mystery. Um, we're told what we need to know in order to trust in Jesus and in order to f- put our faith in him and in order to follow him. But God's not gonna tell us everything that he knows. We, we shouldn't think that, that we as humans can possibly handle all of the knowledge that God has. And God here, it seems like he wants to give us signs. He wants us to be on the edge of our seats. He wants us to be alert. But he wants some of this to remain a mystery. There are some things, if we knew them, we wouldn't be able to handle it. And we have to be okay with that. Like as humans, we have to be okay with not knowing everything that God knows. We have to be okay with some mystery. There are some things that are a surprise for a reason. Just like with our kids at Christmas, right? There's a, there's a reason that we don't tell them uh, what they're getting for Christmas ahead of time. And for us, that reason is like, it would kind of ruin that moment. Like there are some things that are a surprise for a reason. And God has good reasons for not giving us answers to some of our questions or for not giving us maybe as thorough of answers as we would want. Like Jesus answers the disciples' question to a degree, but he doesn't answer it all the way, maybe to the degree of specificity that they would want. Some things he wants to remain a mystery. What does this tell us about us as humans? Well, it seems like we're prone to deception. We're prone to deception. Jesus says, hey, don't be deceived. He's concerned here. He's warning them here. We're prone to deception, and the Bible warns us over and over about false teaching. Guys, we need to be so careful with the latest uh, wild speculations, the latest conspiracy theories, the latest claims that are out there. Paul cautions Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. He tells Timothy to, to tell the church, to tell certain people in the church that they need to stay away from myths and endless genealogies that promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. And we need to stay away from empty speculations. Um, This means we need to stay away from the rapture index. You've heard of that, right? The rapture index. Um, There's a website out there. There's a guy that spent countless hundreds of hours of his life Uh, calculating out different possible events around the end times and rating them on a scale of one to five to show us how close we are. Uh, 187 is where we're at today. I don't know what that means exactly, but apparently back in 1993, we were at 57. So it's really ramped up in the last 20 years, 30 years. Um, Empty speculation, how many hundreds of hours have been poured into this, empty speculations instead of God's plan, which operates on faith. How many of you remember Y2K? Anyone remember that, Y2K? Uh, For those of you that don't remember that, that was back in the 1900s when I was was growing up back then. And... uh, (laughs) For those of you that aren't raising your hands, you're, you're probably Gen Zers here. So, um, but 
But there was a, a moment in time where everybody thought, you know, that when the millennium hits and the clock turns over and the computer systems and all of that, that just had nine, nine and didn't have all four digits of the year, that when things turned over, everything was going to go into worldwide chaos. There was going to be a meltdown and people were kind of aligning that with different end times events and, and making a lot of predictions out there and the books that were being sold, I mean, there's still books on Amazon that you can find about why t- spiritual survival during Y2K. The, the next one is my favorite. And hit the next one. Y2K for women. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even know where we're going with this. But, um, <laughs> but everybody was waiting. You know, there were a lot of people that were predicting grand things that were going to happen aligned with end times. I remember sitting there with my family. And, uh, you know, we didn't really buy into all, the, all, that, all that hysteria. Um, we did have a few extra cases of water on hand that I think we bought. But we were, you know, sitting there bringing in the new millennium. I think I was 11 or 12 years old and watching the, the clock turn over and kind of waiting like, is this, I'm wondering what's going to happen and everything's fine. Right, everything was fine. Of course, there were some people that came back, some of the people that were making these end times prediction that said like, well, really it's like March and April by the time it'll all, it'll all hit, right? Like classic moving the goalposts here. And so I, I just remember that moment. And um, what, what's sad is that as Christians, when we lock on to some of these things, when we fall for some of these different deceptions, kind of spend all this time on these empty speculations And how that harms our reputation in front of the watching world. Man, we of all people should care about truth. And we of all people should should want to maintain a level of credibility where we're not chasing all of these uh, little rabbit trails because we want people to, to believe us when we tell them that Jesus is Lord and that he is coming back and that he is the savior of the world. And so we should be so, so careful with truth and understand that we are easily prone to deception instead of God's plan, which operates on faith. On the other hand, this chapter shows us that we can be easily complacent. Yeah, we can be very prone to deception. We can be very prone to this kind of obsession with end times. We can also be very complacent We can be like those who fall asleep, who aren't alert. That's Jesus' last parable here. And and for some reason, we have a hard time holding attention between these two things. We either kind of run wild with the latest wild prediction and thinking, oh, this is it. Or we fall asleep. And we have a hard time finding that middle ground. So what does Jesus tell us? What is he asking of me? This is an easy question because he gives us a few commands. In fact, if you were studying this on your own, you could maybe take and and underline all of the commands that Jesus gives to his disciples here. Here's a few of them. He says, watch out for deception. We've talked about that already. He says, be on your guard. Be ready to face opposition, even hostility. He says, it's necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. That's an implied Command there, we have a task, we have a job to do. And we will face opposition, but then he says, don't worry, don't worry. 
I'll give you the words to say when you stand before kings, when you stand before governors. He says, endure to the end. Those who are saved are those who endure to the end, who hold fast to their faith in Jesus. And then towards the end of the parable, he says four times, be alert. Whenever Jesus says something like four times in four verses, we should pay attention to that. Uh, He says, be alert. We're supposed to find like this middle ground between kind of staring at the sky, obsessed with the end, and then just like falling asleep. We're supposed to be alert. I think be alert is kind of that middle ground. Be alert, but don't be distracted. Uh, Be alert, but build for the long term. You know, don't, don't run off in wild speculation, but also don't fall asleep either. Be alert. And I wonder for us here at Trinity today, where, where do we fall in that spectrum? Are we, are we finding a good middle ground in that? Are you, really, are you really alert to Jesus' return? I wonder if, I wonder if many of us today, I know for myself, it's probably more of the tending towards maybe falling asleep is, is the danger for me. I wonder if we're finding that middle ground of being alert. You know, years ago, um, I was really challenged with the question of, you know, do you really want Jesus to return now? And I, I, I would think, well, I don't know, like, you know, I think I was 16 years old at the time and I was kind of confronted with that question. I was like, oh man, like, I just started driving, like I'm about to go off to college in a little bit, like I want to get married, you know, I don't think I necessarily thought of having kids at that time, but like as, as life has gone on, like it's like, no, I want to experience more of life. And I kind of realized when I was confronted with that question of, you know, do you really want Jesus to return? Um, I kind of realized, of, of course, it'd be far better if Jesus returned now. It'd be far better to be with him now. And I wonder, how, how do we keep that perspective of being alert, of longing for his return, not just staring at the sky and kind of waiting around and sitting around, but being alert and ready and active. And that's a struggle for me. I wonder if that's a struggle for you. Um, to, to keep this teaching of Jesus' return as not just this little back burner bit of, of teaching in the Bible, but as an active part of your expectation in your life. I wonder how we do that. How do you find that, that middle ground where you're living alert and preparing for his return? Well, I think for many of you, you're actually doing that right now, in a sense, because you're living right now in preparation in anticipation of a day that's coming in about three weeks, Christmas Day. And this is a season of, of Advent, we call it. Advent just means arrival. And it's a season where we anticipate the, uh, the celebration of Jesus' birth on December 25th. And we call it arrival because we're anticipating this celebration of Jesus' first coming. But it's also been, historically for Christians, a season where we anticipate the the second coming of Jesus as well. And we remember that in the same way that God's people anticipated the first coming of Jesus, in that same way we today anticipate the second coming of Jesus. And I think 
and anticipating kind of in the weeks and days leading up to Christmas Day, I think the way that, that we live and prepare and anticipate that is, is maybe a really good model and picture of how we anticipate the return of Jesus. Because for, for some of you, uh, you're not prepared for Christmas at all right now. And even like, I'm not ready. I'm not, I haven't even started. I don't have a tree in my, you know, nothing right now. How many of you have actually like maybe started a little bit prepared? Like how many of you have started your Christmas shopping? Maybe a few of you. Um, how many of you are done? Is anyone done with their Christmas shopping? Wow. Okay. All right. That's a, that's a brag. That's a flex right there. Um, man, I think that some of you are very prepared. And some of you are like, no, I'm not, I'm not really at all prepared, not really even thinking about it. The day's coming in like three weeks, ready or not. And maybe that's a good analogy for us, a good model for us in this season. In the same way that we would maybe anticipate, and if you ask a kid, they want that day to be here now, right? They're like, I don't wanna wait another three weeks. Like, you know, I want December 25th on my little chocolate advent calendar to be here now. I'll eat all the candy in, the, you know, in one sitting. Um, and I wonder if we are, are, are holding that tension, are holding that tension between this kind of speculation and obsession and every moment thinking the sky is falling, but then not falling asleep either, being alert, preparing for his return. For some of you, maybe just preparing is, you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Are you ready are you ready for that day when he comes? And are you part of the people of God through faith in Jesus and trusting in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross and his death and resurrection for your sins on your behalf so that you could be forgiven of your sins and have eternal life? And there are others we're preparing. Preparing maybe means helping others be prepared. What does it look like to, to be alert? for us today in preparation of that day. So Lord, we just thank you for your word and thank you for this reality of Advent, this dual reality of Advent that we look back and celebrate your coming, your first coming, and we look forward and we anticipate your second coming, your return. Help us to be those that are alert Help us to be those that are prepared. Your servants, ready for you on that day. In Jesus' name, amen.